Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. I first met Giles Brooke in 2006 at the legendary Fruit Towers in London, where he interviewed me for a job at Innocent Smoothies, where he was commercial director. Since then, Giles has built up probably the most superb CV in the food and beverage industry, not to mention a portfolio of investments that would make anyone of my age, an age I share with Giles, weep with envy. Giles has been behind the growth of numerous insurgent brands, Innocent, Bear, Vitacoco, Pippa Nut to name but a few. He is currently CEO of Vitacoco for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, which he launched over 10 years ago and which is now turning over £40 million in sales. Although he's the highest ranked individual in the grocer's food and drink power list, outside of any global and multinational CEOs, he is also nice as he takes time out of the office to mentor and guide entrepreneurs. Here's our interview earlier this week, where we talk about what he looks for when investing in a company, whether looking for investment up front or driving organic growth should be the thing, and how it can be really hard for founders working in the food industry. Giles, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Good morning. Nice to speak to you, Effie, and obviously, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So listen, Giles, one of the things that really fascinates me about you is how did you end up making the jump from working in big food and beverage to actually starting to invest in companies? What was that jump like? And take us through it. So I think it's uh, for myself. I mean, I've I've been a food and drink uh, industry lifer. I mean, I, I even did my degree in food marketing. So I kind of started United Biscuits, then went on to Coke, uh, then did... Um, just under four and a half, well, four, four, four and a half years innocent, which is an amazing time. We went from 17 to 120 million in, in that period. Um, and I guess I've always harbored ambitions to do my own thing. Uh, so I left innocent, um, just as actually the, the Coke deal was going through because I wanted to back myself to do something my, you know, on my own because that was a big driver for me. I really wanted to kind of start my own thing and ended up kind of doing two things, which, uh, I met Andrew and Haley, uh, who'd founded a business called Urban Fresh Fr- uh, Foods Limited. And together, uh, we launched Bear, which obviously now today is the number one fruit snack brand in the UK, but actually the number one kids snack brand, but also the number one overall lunch uh, box brand now in the, in, in the UK. Wow. And, and at the same time, actually, I met the one of the early investors in Vita Coco, and they took me through coconut water. Now, I kind of tasted it and recoiled a little bit, if I'm honest, <laughs> uh, but kind of got to understand a little bit about the business. I've actually been tracking it on an American beverage specialist website called BevNet. Uh, so I've been seeing what was going on with coconut water. Clearly, I've always been looking at trends, what's, what happens in food and drink. And uh, essentially, Mike Kerbin, who's the founder, so him and him, him and Ira founded the business. Mike came over to London for the day. We had a meeting and we did a deal there and then on the day. Uh, and he gave me a chance to kind of run loose with Vitacoco in Europe. Uh, and that was kind of... Ten and a half years ago, and it's been an amazing journey, and uh, you know that's kind of how it all kind of came about, really. Wow! And do you, did it just work between the two of you at that meeting? Did he take a risk on you, or how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, my, my, I think Mike and I are frustratingly for a lot of people very similar. I think we've both got quite a entrepreneurial streak. We kind of get dragged into kind of process and systems. So when your business grows and you have to put something like the SAP system in or something like that, we kind of begrudgingly go with it. Uh, I think most people who work with both of us hate us being in the same room. Uh-huh. But actually, but actually, Mike and I were quite a good mix as well because. You know, Mike 
um, is very uh, instinctive. You know, he really does leave everything from, from the heart originally. And actually, I came from Innocent, which is a very, very insight-driven business. So kind of where we actually ended up is probably today, we've kind of both kind of ended up being somewhere in the middle. So still using a lot of intuition and gut feel, but also, you know, mixing that in with insights because obviously today, you know, particularly when, you know, globally, we've got a kind of, um, you know, business that's in excess of, you know, 400 million and we're cracking almost 2 million coconuts um, a day. You know, the stakes are slightly higher. So therefore, insights drive, you know, a lot more decision making today than necessarily 10 and a half years ago where gut feel, we just go for it. And when you say insight, do you mean data points in research? Yeah, data points in research. I mean, I'll be absolutely honest with you. Um and something that Mike and I share the same view on it is that, I, you know, I'm a big believer that you use data and insights to help make decisions, but you don't let them lead decisions. And I give you the best example I can for my career on that. I'd listen to data and we'd listen to insights and research. We would categorically never launch the bare fruit yo-yos on the bare business that I was involved in because our, every bit of data told us it wasn't going to work consumers wouldn't want to buy it. Whereas today, that obviously is now kind of one of the biggest hero products in, in you know in kids snacking. Wow. What were consumers telling you or what was the research telling you that said don't do it? They said they wouldn't like the format. Uh, they wouldn't understand that it was just pure fruit. Uh, and they thought that the, the bare collector cards were gimmicky, which hmm. uh, <laughs> for me, it's incredible when you kind of, when you look at it, because I mean, we all remember growing up as kids that, you know, kind of swapping cards in the yeah. playground. We knew we had a great tasty product. We knew that there were already other products in the market that were using kind of like wheels or, or whole wrap fruit. Uh, we've seen it also work in countries like South Africa where it'd been very successful. So obviously that's what the research came came back with. But, you know, fundamentally we believed and we kind of pushed the research to one side and went ahead with the launch. And this is slightly going off topic here, but I know our listeners, particularly in smaller companies, will be saying, but how do you explain that? How do you explain that consumers were telling you something totally different to what the reality of the situation ended up being i think you, you obviously with all research uh, and all findings it you always take a sample uh, and i guess whilst you try to make that sample as representative as possible that necessarily isn't always the you know always the case um mm. and you know there's definitely been examples where we have that we have absolutely listened to uh, what the research is you know is saying and what consumers are telling us because categorically you know we wouldn't be successful i wouldn't be successful in the businesses that i am being in terms of um, you know, when we, you know, in terms of when we're researching new product launches or just looking at performance, if we didn't use data, we wouldn't be successful. But sure. I just mean it's not the be all and end all. And you know, for something pre-launch, I think it's different. I think when you've launched a product and you've got consumers in them buy your product, my God, do I listen to consumers then? Because I spend my day obsessing with my consumers to understand what's great, what's not so great. And probably one of the most important things to me is where I've got a lapsed or a reject consumer, that's all I'm interested in about how I can get those guys back in the brand. Because I think if you can turn around a consumer, that's always the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so take us through. You were in Innocent. You went, you started Vitacoco for the founders. You started in the UK, I mean, for the US founder. And since then, you've grown that business, but you've also invested in some other businesses. Is that right? Yeah, so people kind of get to know me. I think there's, there's different, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about this, but I think this is why you kind of, when you look at founders and you, and you look at entrepreneurs, you've got to understand the type of entrepreneur they are. And there's no point in trying to, you know, push somebody into a box they're not into. And I'm, I'm the sort of person where I like to have a busy life. I can't just do one thing. I like to do multiple things. And what excites me is looking at 
macro trends, opportunities aren't being met or consumers who aren't getting what they rightfully deserve mm -hmm. and finding either new ways to kind of uh, fix that or else finding ways to improve things. So, you know, on, on Vitacoco, we completely cultured a new category and we, we you know, it, you know, from literally inception, Vitacoco grew the whole coconut water uh, package category starting in the US over 14 years ago. And then if you look at something like on the bear business, you know, there was lots of other fruit snacks already out there, but they all contained a whole load of hidden nasties sure. or, you know, they weren't quite as they were, you know, consumers were being misled about the health of them. And that's why we created Bear, which was all about no added nonsense and 100% pure fruit product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, these are all insurgent brands that have created a new category, basically adjacent to a category that already existed, right? The so-called yeah. Blue Ocean. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the thing for me is... I always try and pick a few things and do a few things well. I'm not on about trying to, you know, grow a portfolio and do hundreds and hundreds of different involvements or investments. I'm just about picking a few things, doing well. I have some clear principles around trying to avoid any conflicts. Um, you know, I tend to only try and partner with a brand in one specific category. I've now started doing stuff outside of food and drink as well. Obviously, and not surprising, I'm looking at stuff which is more technology and, and direct to consumer based as well. So I'm kind of evolving my involvements in, 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 in you know in different businesses. But the most important thing is I have to be passionate about what 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 that product or what that service is delivering. Okay. It could be an amazing commercial opportunity, but I just won't do it unless it resonates with me personally. So okay, so that's one of the things, one of the big things for you. It has to resonate personally. So that was going to be my question was really what do you look for in a company when you're considering investing? Besides this personal resonance and I suppose the fact that maybe it creates a new category would that be one of the the key principles for you yeah I think so there's probably three or four things I look look for and I think first and foremost and this is the most important it's it's I always try and look at a business to try and find you know I have to see straight away an outstanding founder and really what do I mean by an outstanding founder I think it's somebody who's got incredible amount of charisma but importantly has a huge amount of humility because okay. uh, I think humility is such an important you know an aspect of, of any leader in, in, in any business I think there's got to be somebody you know a founder who's got resilience and I'll probably talk a little bit about that later with you but you know one of the biggest things for me is I think this is a big area that a lot of um, investors kind of overlook um, and, and you know I think setting up and doing a business for inception and running a business whether it's just yourself or with you know co-founders it's absolutely brutal and I'll talk a little bit about about that you know later so yeah I mean I'll also look at things with a founder about things like their attitude to risk you know importantly can they listen but the most important thing is do I personally click and I can tell you within 30 seconds of meeting any founder I know if I can work with that founder and if I can go on that journey with that founder so I think outstanding founder is probably one of the big things I look for wow as well as kind of big growth and scalability of the business actually the most second most important thing I look for is strong gross margins from day one and actually something that a lot of people overlook uh, and actually if you kind of go out into the into the kind of the M&A and the fundraising so M&A merger and acquisitions and then into the fundraising kind of um, environments at the moment actually gross margin rate is probably, probably becoming as if if not more important than absolute scale and revenue growth because unless as a business you can generate you know decent money at uh, gross margin level you're always going to be chasing your tail and, and burning cash and that's what people don't that's what people don't realize um so gross mar gross margin really for me is, is is absolutely critical and what i also hate is people go 
oh, I know it's really low today, but don't worry, I've got a, I've got a plan to kind of get it higher. I was just about okay. to ask you that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like, oh, hang on a minute, because, okay, you might get some cost of goods efficiencies and energies, but whatever you get back on that, I can tell you, as soon as you start getting in with the big, the big boys and the big retailers, margin only goes one way. So for me, it's a, uh, it's a, you know, it's it's a very dangerous thing, and I will only personally get involved in a business which has a, a strong gross margin from day one. Okay. Now, do you have any benchmarks on that? I mean, do you say, right, I won't invest in a business that has a gross margin less than thirty five percent in food and yeah? 60 so in, in so I think first first of all, f- for a lot of people, let's define what gross margin is because people will manipulate gross margins. Some will just divide it by gross revenue. Some will divide it by net revenue. Some will put in trade spend, i.e., promotional costs. Some will and won't put in logistics costs to try. Sure. You know, manipulate their, um, you know, their, their gross margin. But for me, simply, I look at net revenue, which is basically when you've taken all of your trade spend, so your promotional costs. If you're having to pay any fees for like um, display space, such as gondola ends, so I look at net revenue, and what I'll do is I'll take um, the net revenue minus the cost of goods, including the the uh, delivering the product to the uh, to whichever customer it will be. Uh, and that's how I derive the gross margin. And yeah. in food and drink, I will basically be looking as a minimum uh, of 35%, as you just said there. But ideally, I want the magic 40 and wherever possible 50. Because unless you're generating good gross margins, you just can't, your cash burn rate is huge. But not just that, you can't yeah. build an infrastructure. You can't invest in consumer marketing without you know investing in you know, putting a decent amount of money down. And without gross margin, you can't do that unless you just end up fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. Yeah. And we've seen a number of businesses get, get themselves into a right pickle over that. Do you know, it's really funny. I, I almost wish that there was, and I might, I might actually do this at the end of series two, but I wish there was almost like the, the top 20 things you wish you knew before you started your food startup, <laughs> right? And one of them would be, if you know that your gross margin is never going to be 35 or 40, stop, start again, as in, you know, amend your concept uh, can you move from chilled to frozen yeah. or ambient you know what can you do that's going to significantly step change that gross margin because all of these little incrementals we can save a percent here or a point here are never really going to add up to the big jump you no, know completely and that's a, that's that's the big thing for me which is you know if you've got a sustainable gross margin and you've got a platform you can grow gross margin from from day one it just makes it a lot easier it's just you know working with something that's got starts with a one or two i.e 10 10 to 20 or 20 to 30 percent margin it's very very tough as, as, as an early startup trying to kind of generate you know, uh, you know yeah. a sound a sound sustainable business and tell me this talk to me about rate of sale which basically is you know the one variable one can manipulate in order to make your revenue projection look bigger or smaller right and you can yeah. either reflect reality or not when you're looking at some growth projections put to you by a company that wants you to invest how do you gauge whether their revenue projections are realistic or not yeah, no, it's, um, I, I think there's a number of things I'll do. So when I'm looking at revenue projections, I'll always look to see, is that revenue based off buying distribution or is it based off strong rate of sale, that importantly rate of sale that is something that is heading in the right direction and, and growing? Yeah. And then when I look at that, and then obviously I'll, that's the first thing I'll look at, and then I'll say, right, okay, there's a business here that's had a good amount of initial distribution and their rate of sale looks pretty good. What I'll then do is I'll then look at where that rate of sale is coming from. Is it coming from base, i.e. sales at full price? Mm-hmm. Or is it coming from them buying rate of sale via promotions? And obviously what I'll tr- typically try and do is hopefully that company has access to data uh, and 
I'll ask them to say, look, can you show me base versus your promotional rate of sale? Or worst case, what I can do is obviously I can look at the average invoice price after promotional discounts and I can work out relatively how much discount they've done. And if I look at a business now and I know roughly they're putting between 8 to 15% of revenue back into promotional discounts, I'm broadly comfortable. If I see a business that's putting something like 15 to 30% of revenue back into promotional discounts, there's a red flag for me, which says they're buying volume uh, and they don't have a sustainable business or else they have a very weak base rate of sale. What happens though, if you launch into a category, say like Frozen, where the industry myth or reality, I don't know, would be that 80% of the volume is done on deal? Uh, so I think it's interesting actually because the, some of the categories I already work in, I invest in, you've got anywhere between 60 to 90% of volume done, uh, sold on deals. If you look at Chill Juice, um, you can look at that. But this is where actually, it's it, it, this is where you kind of go down to that next level of detail. And the irony here is that obviously I spoke earlier about not getting too much into the data, but actually this is where I do get into the data. And mm-hmm. actually, if you look at this is that the amount sold on deal is all about percentage sold on deals one one thing to look at but the second the second thing against that is actually what level of discount relative to your amount sold on deal is because if you've got 80 percent of sold on deal but the only the average discount is only like 10 12 percent that's fine but okay. if you've got 80 percent sold on deal but the average discount is 35 40 percent that derives a very different p l yeah you know implication so looking actually at both the amount sold on deal and then the percentage of discount given on a weight or an average basis, you look at the combination of, of those really to, to understand you know, about it. But there's nothing worse than picking up a, you know information memorandum on a business you get initially excited by, and then you can quickly see that 80% of their volume sold on deal. Oh, and look, it's 80, and 80% of that is come on a buy one, get one free, or something that's like a 30, 40, 50% discount, i.e. they are completely buying the volume, and you can quickly see that there is no sustainable base rate of sale. And that becomes a very quick conversation for me. I think that would be the second thing that I'd put on that list of 20 things, which is, you know, if you're suggesting to yourself and your investor that you are going to be in a category like that, um, you have to assume that within three years, you'll be playing that game with all the big competitors too, because the retailers will push you to do that. After 18 months, they'll say, "Okay, you know, we've given you a nice try. You've had a nice cosy time with us and we've given you lots of a little bit of free trolley advertising and we've, you know, given you some extra this and extra that. Now put your money where your mouth is and give me a bog off and and I want to. Yeah. You're, you're going to end up playing the same game, aren't you? So unless your P&L projections over three to five yeah. years show your investor that you've realistically taken that into account, then you're not really being realistic about the future of your business, are you? No, I think I think you're not. I think you've got to, I mean, again, when you look at investing or get involved in the business, that three-year plan and looking at the assumptions that they've got about trade spend, about promotional discounts um, is vital. Um the only thing I'd say, I caveat that with a little bit at the moment, Fee, is that the world of, you know, so let's just talk specifically about the UK rather than at European level, but at yeah. UK level, the world of retailer uh, approach to promotions is changing a little bit. Obviously, a huge amount of uh, erosion of their business coming from the discounters. And obviously, that's now driving a lot of retailers to kind of say, well, we'd rather you invest everything into case price so we can fight on you know, on an everyday low price basis, i.e., I, you know, a reduced okay. shelf price every day, and clearly the retailer would, you know, would decide what that price is. Um, and actually, a lot of them are um, are now kind of starting to come off the drug of those very heavy discount promotions. And very interestingly, outside of the UK, 
France have just put a new legislation where the maximum discount that you can give is now 35%. Yeah. And also the maximum amount of volume you can sell on deal a year is 25%. Because again, they're trying to drive responsible behaviors. But I also believe, and again, it's one of these things as well. I'm, I'm intrinsically involved in natural and healthy products. Mm-hmm. The more heavier discounting products is typically always the stuff that's cheaper to make. And that drives to me, you know, difficult decisions for the retailers because obviously they want to try and make consumers more accessible, healthy, natural products. Right. Whereas a lot of the stuff that tends to be on very heavy discount is the kind of sugar laden, fat laden, cheap products. And that's again, hopefully in terms of kind of the wider purpose about trying to help consumers kind of lead a healthier, balanced life. I think this promotional strategy plays a key part in that as well. That's a really good point. So is that another one of your key principles, which is the um, company that I'm going to invest in has to be healthy, be delivering yeah. a healthy proposition? So it typically, historically, it was. Um, it was always about having to be healthy and 100% natural. It's changed a little bit recently. I, I've never wanted to preach. So I think the reason it's changed as well is two things, which is I think the whole corporate social responsibility, environmental side of things is becoming very important. And so is the social side as well, i.e. a business that does good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, like, let me give you a good, a good example of a business that, you know, would I get involved or love to get involved with a business that necessarily isn't healthy, but I believe it's got a great cause behind it. So I know that previously you've interviewed uh, Ben, who runs the UK for Tony Chocoloni. Yes. That's a great example of a business where I could look, I look at that business and say, what an amazing business. Each consumer who buys one of those bars can have a positive impact on the world around them. And it's, you know, led by a very inspiring, um, you know, kind of leader of that business in, in a lovely guy called Hank Yang. Um, and that's a business where, yeah, I would get involved in that business because it's got a true, strong, bigger purpose behind it. So I think, yes, natural and healthy is always the first put of call, but I'll always look at the wider picture, as you know, as that example illustrates. Yeah. Did you see our interview with Seki Le Patron or Who's the Boss or the consumer brand, which was one of the episodes. I've, the last seen, episode. I've seen you've done it. I haven't listened to it yet, but I it's, categorically will at some point. It's It'll amazing. Be... I mean, not the interview, obviously, but the, the, the subject, because you, you mentioned there France and, and how the trend is towards more responsible behaviour. But that is just mind blowing in terms of how it's changing uh, categories in France and consumer behaviour and the way in which the retail trade is engaging with their suppliers. So it's it's big. I think it's big. Yeah, no, completely, completely. So what else then? Is there anything else in terms of what you look for in a company when you're considering Yeah, there's there's two other things I didn't touch on uh, earlier, which is I think, look, is the product or brand unique? uh, Or or is it truly, you know, better than what's already out there? So that's kind of something I'll always look at. And then for me, then it comes down to looking at the category. Is a category scalable? And is it here for the long term? And, I, you know, again, if I take coconut water as an example, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, coconut water is a bit polarizing in taste. Why get involved in that? And I looked at that category and I, you know, and I, and I looked at that and I said, well, look, all around the world, people have been drinking coconut water for generations and generations. You know, in Brazil, it's more heavily consumed than orange juice, uh, as an example. You know, World War II, it was put on um, intravenous drips because it helped, the electrolytes helped, you know, in the injured the soldiers blood. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, I knew it's this, you know, it's, we always call it a little bit of nature's best kept secret. And what's been really interesting for me is over that, you know, we launched in the UK 10 years ago and over the last few years, we've seen maple water, cactus water, melon water, birch water, blah, 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 all come in. And actually virtually all of those brands and categories have fallen away. Um, and, you know, what we 
I got involved in coconut water because I knew it was going to be around for the long term. And we could really start to see is that we saw a few consumers go away and try those sort of products. But we're now seeing those consumers come back and back to us. And, you know, we'd, we've just had the strongest 16 weeks uh, of kind of market data that we've had in, in over four years. And again, this is what I mean about the sustainability robustness of a category, because I'll always try and again, it's not always possible, but I'll always try and get involved in categories that have got that long term um, ability rather than things that tend to be, a, you know, tend to be a fad. Okay. And, and so was it that one piece of data that, you know, that you realised that people have been drinking this stuff for hundreds of years that made you realise it was more, had more longevity in the category than any other type of water? Yeah. It was it was that reference point, but I guess it was also you know Mike Mike and I uh, you know Mike Kerbin is one of the founders of Adicoco. He and I have become you know very close, but I guess straight away from day one, he was a guy that I immediately trusted. And trust in business is a really important thing for me. And yeah. you know he taught me through what they were seeing in New York's you know trying to get used to the US termin- uh, terminology. You called it rate of sale earlier. They call it rotations. Yeah. So he was telling me about the he was telling me about the rotations, and you know I kind of looked at that and I thought, you know what. I really believe there's something in this. I'm going to give this a really, you know, really good go. And, you know, so I, I kind of did a mixture between listening to Mike, hearing Mike's view, and then doing a little bit of my own research. And, you know, both both Mike, Mike and the guy who's, who's from our lead investor, uh, you know, looked at those two guys and said, look, do I want to go on a journey with them? And that's something I wanted to do. It's really interesting that you mentioned um, you looked at the rate of sale of, or the rotations of what was already happening in New York. One of the things that I always ask the companies I'm working with on any of the accelerator programs is if they're already in stores, what's the rate of sale in the best store? And generally they don't know. And I'm always quite surprised, but I get them to go out and and ask, you know, and they say, well, how do I find that out? The retailer's not giving me the data. And I say, you go and ask the guy who stacks the shelf, because I tend to find, find that that first six weeks or eight weeks of rate of sale in the best stores will tell you what's the demand of the product going to be at a base rate in, in the first year or the first two years? Is that right? Yeah. Or is that just, agree. you do no, agree? I, compl- I, I completely agree with that. And the only, the, only, the only thing I build on that is to say, what I do is I, wherever possible, particularly when there's a slightly mature, more mature business or brand, is I will look at the rate of sale across the different channels because everybody will give you a, oh, look at what my brand's doing in Whole Foods or a, a oh, yeah. organic. But I will also then say, well, look, yeah. okay, you've been in a... Tesco's or Sainsbury's, wherever it is, for the last year, can you share with me where the rate of sale is on them? And also, also wherever you can get it is something what we call like for like sales in the industry, where you know looking at the stores that you've you've been in since the de- first day you went into to really understanding what's happening in those late in those stores you've been in longest, as well as the stores you've come into more recently. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Well, that's good to know that it's it's not just me imagining that that's the way to to, to look at it. No you're, no, you're spot on there. So okay. So. Tell me about raising money. So when I was back, you know, a long time ago, back in Goo and I, I'd met you in Innocent, raising money was something that was kind of private and between the founder and somebody, a family or friend, or maybe he had the money himself or in, in James Averdick's case, he met Motti, who owned the patisserie in, in North London, and they put in a little bit of money. But most of the money in those days that you would spend on marketing or people or uh, machinery you know, eventually was was built through organic sales. So you made your own money through your sales and then you reinvested that back into the business. At least that's my understanding. But nowadays it seems to be totally different. It, it's, it's very public and people post on LinkedIn and it's I'm doing, I've just got around a series A and, and you're getting huge amounts of money upfront to drive growth in very punchy business plans. Which way is, is the right way? <laughs> Impossible question that. Um, 
I guess for me, it's it's always circumstantial. I look at it on a case by case basis. You know, if I give you two examples, that are probably most relevant for me is that, you know, I got involved with Bear uh, and actually then led Vitacoco uh, into 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 UK at the same time. And actually, if you look at Bear, we managed to get that business to just under twenty five million turnover without raising any external capital. Three of us put thirty thousand pounds in each, and we managed to basically get the business all the way through to twenty-five million with only using that ninety thousand. Um, and that's an example there where I think you can still build a brand based on using those seeding principles. But you know, I then counter that with Vitacoco, American business wanted obviously you know big ambitions. Also, founders with a slightly different mentality, and it, I would never ever criticize anybody. But the bear, the bear guys wanted to do it themselves, and I wanted to kind of I was happy to support that. But the Vitacoco guys, you know, particularly in the US where you do need to go in with with slightly heavier ammunition to, to, to use a phrase yeah you know there was more money raised there and actually by the time we kind of when we sold business uh, the bear business four years ago at that point in time Vitacoco was about 35 percent bigger than bear at that stage and it, i believe that was because we'd actually got more money in and been able to grow the business to that level so i think you know you've got to look at the founders you've got to look at the type of the business you've got to look at the people who are involved in it and decide you know what's the best route for, for you to take and that's one of the things i also look at when i speak to founders because you know if you've got a founder either who doesn't want to raise money or else doesn't want to dilute typically is a problem because you know i always want to minimum minimize dilution for everybody but you know if, if you've got a situation you need more cash in the business but somebody's just got their head in the sun and say no i'm not going to raise more money or i'm not going to mm-hmm. dilute anymore and i've always used an analogy, analogy for myself personally which is would you rather have a piece of watermelon or a whole grape and i'm one of those people that i'd rather have a piece of watermelon and that's for two reasons which is three reasons one i'm not greedy two i know you need to get funds in, in a business to make it successful and then thirdly i like i also want to dilute because I want to give key people around the business some share of the spoils as well. I'm always, I'm a big believer in basically people who help you deliver the journey and where you want to go to as a business. If there is ever an exit or a partial exit, I want to be looking, sat in a room and I'm looking around a room with other people smiling rather than being a founder or an owner of a business who basically takes the loot and goes, you know, runs for the door. Cause that's always been a really, really important thing. That is know. such a good point. Definitely. And I think there's, there's probably many listeners out there who've been on the other side of that. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it, some horrendous stories, right? I mean, we've, we've, we've heard a lot of them or else it's come down to a deal's been done and then suddenly something hasn't triggered in a contract and oh, yeah. somebody who's, somebody's dedicated their life for, yeah. you know, the last five years, decade, suddenly left high and dry and you know i I wince when i see things like that because i just you know for me it's business business is more about having fun being successful doing things you enjoy but sharing the spoils and if you can't operate with those principles i I, you know i just i don't know how you sleep at night personally if i'm the person who's kind of taking the swag bag and and, and running for the door i just don't get it and somebody will say well i i created all this i started all this well yeah but you know if i look at the bear business we had a management team of four guys or five guys. They were as important as Andrew and Haley, who are the founders, and as, as me as the, as the lead kind of founding partner and investor in the business. And, you know, we made sure they got looked after as part of the deal as well. Well, I think that's fabulous. I really do. Um, well, actually, I was going to add, actually, because you asked me about kind of, you know, how much money to raise and, and, yeah. and, and the level of investment. And I think there's a couple of things I'd say on that, which is I think, you know, it's all about really about understanding what stage a business is at. And if you're at proof of concept stage, I'd say only raise an amount that gets you to be able to get that proof of concept through and strong and then raise money off that. Because clearly, if you've got a good proof of concept, you can then 
um, raise hopefully off a higher higher valuation. Okay. Um, I, what I always tend to do though is I always tend to advise and and when I go out to market when I'm already in, involved in businesses directly, I'll tend to go out and raise a little bit more than we think we need because running a process of raising money is such a distraction for everybody because there's a lot of due diligence that's done as part of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what anybody says, but you know, you'll hear people who go, oh, run the business as usual when you're fundraising. It's absolutely impossible to do that because it's such it's such a time-consuming thing. So I always advise the guys to take a little bit more money so you get a good amount of time that the guys can get back focused on the business and run the business day to day because the last thing you want to do is raise money and then four months later be going back out into market saying right i need to go and get more money because it's just you just it's just too much distraction for the from the from the kind of day-to-day business but okay that's that's a really good point tell me this if i was an investor and i was sitting in front of some people who had come to me looking for money and they were looking for a big amount of money to create a big bang and even if it was a great concept if they yeah. have no previous experience in the food industry, I would probably say to them, go off and show me that you personally and your team can drive organic growth for a while and then come back to me and ask me for the big money. But if they already had lots of experience in the food industry uh, and they'd worked for, you know, X or Y big company or a small startup and, and they knew things like how to drive distribution, how to negotiate with retailers, how to get the best out of your supply chain, I'd probably be more willing to give them the big money up front. Is that something you consider or not? Uh, I think, yeah, definitely. As I said before, I think it's circumstantial, but as a, as a general rule, um, I mean, look, right, it's also, look at it the other way around as well. Is uh, There's two different ways of looking at it because also, let's just say you're looking at a founder mm-hmm. and you're looking at getting, and you're the person who wants to get that level of money in. I'd also look at the investment partner and say, do they have an all-round skill set that can bring value? Because if you've got a decent brand or, or concept, anybody can raise money, but really it's about the strategic value that comes with that money. Okay. And so if I look at, if I look at, like, let's say, Vitacoco's lead investor, Verl Invest, what I love about working with those guys is they don't just have the financial acumen you'd expect them all to have, but two or three of the senior team have actually come from the other side of the fence. They've worked on brands either in commercial or, or marketing capacities, and therefore they really understand how you build a brand properly. And I think having that balance, I think, is really important. But I think the, one of the frustrations I have as, as somebody who operates in, in, in an industry that obviously I'm very proud and passionate about is that we do see a lot of industry outsiders coming in. And I really applaud that because I want everybody to be successful. What we often see, you know, particularly from you know, financial backgrounds, is people just come in and just spray cash everywhere because they <laughs> think that it's easy to come into food and drink. They've got this concept. I mean, how many energy drinks have we seen come in and spend yeah millions and millions of pounds taking on the likes of Red Bull and Monster. And the trouble is, is that then drives irresponsible behaviors because retailers are going, I know this product isn't going to work. I know that actually I should keep my space to these better sellers or these products which are better meeting consumer need states. But this guy's given me such a big check. I've got to put that in there. And he knows it's going to be out there in three or six months time. But of course, and I don't blame them because they've got their own targets to do, but they'll put it in there. And I just see this time and time again where you see these concepts of brands coming in or throw cash in cause a load of disruption but when the dust settles nine out of ten times they've done more harm than good to the category yeah uh, because you know particularly you know, they'll, they'll, you know some of the some of the things that they employ and what they do i don't think is beneficial to the category for the you know for long term or even to the consumer long term either that's a really good point you make giles i i hadn't considered that the irresponsible behavior that that could kind of um engender 
Tell me, you know, it, it can be quite stressful, can't it, if you're a founder in the situation where you are launching a business into particularly retail grocery, but I mean, any channel, it can be quite stressful, can't it? And I think you're quite passionate about this point. You mentioned it in the in the introduction. Yeah, I mean, look, right. I mean, I've, I've been there and done it myself. I mean, I remember when kind of starting Viacoca and then getting involved with Bear. I mean, it was six and working six and a half days a week. I mean, I was a, I was at either a trade or consumer show for 51 of the 52 week, weeks of the first year. Oh my God. It was completely, it was completely, you were, you were literally all in. Uh, and it was, you know, one of the benefits I had was obviously I was doing it with other people. And I think that's one of the things that founders need to consider when they go into business. Do you do it on your own or do you do it with a couple of people and, you know, a great, a great case study of that is let's look at Innocent, which is probably one of the biggest success stories in entrepreneurship and startups. And Richard, Adam, and John, one very marketing focused, another very ops focused, another sorry, operations focused, another one very commercial. They complemented each other very well, but they also shared the burden as well. So I think that's another thing for, for founders to think about. But I think one of the biggest things that I try and do, um, not just to my kind of where I'm involved with different brands and businesses and founders, but also you know, I always kind of leave an hour, two hours a week to try and kind of mentor and help founders who who kind of get in touch with me is I just see a huge amount of financial and commercial support and what I call business-led support for founders. But I see a massive, massive void around emotional and well-being support that I think founders need from industry experts or industry people experienced industry people or their investor base i don't think they get and i hate to say it as well i've often seen that you know when an investor should be supporting putting an arm around a founder arm around a founder i've often seen more case of it's kind of more stick and more stick and more stick rather than carrot all that supporting arm and i think you know for me I really want to try and help as many founders as I can. I also, as an industry, I want to look at it and say, look, what can we all do to help these people who've, you know, had the balls to go out and start their own businesses. They want to be successful. They've got a dream. They're very passionate about it. It will be a bumpy road. It will be challenging outside of the typical, I can give you some advice. I can give you, we can get raise some money and cash as an industry. You know, and also as as a kind of a movement into entrepreneurship, how can we do more to help these guys create that mental resilience and that ability to cope with the un, the overwhelming stress and challenges that you get, which no disrespect you wouldn't get in a bigger business or bigger environment. And 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 I think that's something that you know it's definitely something I'm always kind of mulling over and saying, look, you know, what can I personally you know do more on that? And it's something I'm starting to speak a little bit more about. And there's a couple of entrepreneurship startup. Um, organizations and, and government-backed uh, businesses. I'm starting to talk whether there's any sort of programs we can actually put in place that would help help that a little bit more. Um, so I think that's that's probably the big thing. But I think also as part of that is one of the things I've always recommended to founders as well is that I know you literally your business has to be everything and absolutely the be all and end all and it's a 24/7 thing. But all of my involvements, I want these guys to have a life outside of their business or their startup. And I've, you know, whether that's family or whether knowing that it's something that they, you know, they're, they're passionate about. And if I look at someone like Pip at Pip and Nut, um, Pip was, you know, she started the business. She was a marathon runner. She really enjoyed it, but, but the business has been so brutal and so tough in the last couple of years. She's just 
still runs, not being able to do as much as she wants. But, you know, off her own, you know, volition and obviously with me nagging her a little bit, she's really got back into running. I think two weeks ago she did the Amsterdam Marathon. And actually for the business as well, that's the best thing because she gets that escapism. She gets that new energy. And also, you know, what's great about going, going out and an example for me and why I, you know, I personally do also a lot of exercise and stuff is that that's my thinking time as well. And one of the, one of the things that, that, that some of the guys who work with me laugh about is that they know when I've been on a bike for two, three, four hours because a flurry of emails are coming <laughs> because I've been, been doing a lot of thinking while I'm on there. Mm. So I think, I think that's really important for me is that, you know, again, the mentality would be, well, they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't take time for holiday. They've got to be committed to the business. Of course, it's tough. Well, actually, do you know what? Getting some respite, getting some escapism is actually the best thing to do. Having somebody who's literally nailed to the desk and business, 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 for me, is counter, counterintuitive and counterproductive. Well, I think that's a wonderful attitude and and really caring. It sounds really caring. Um, and there should be more people uh, out there who, who think in that way, you know. And I think as as humans, we should be less hard on ourselves, but certainly entrepreneurs and people who are driven to to succeed. And they've, they've also probably bet a huge amount of their time in their life and their, their family's uh, time on a business. They need to also be less hard on themselves. Tell me this, you, you are off on a plane, aren't you? Off to do a, a race somewhere exotic. <laughs> yeah. Where are you going? Yes. So uh, as I'm, I'm as I'm leaving, I'm trying to have a look. As I'm leaving, the seven and a half degrees in the UK. I'm heading. To, I'm heading to a very small island called Cozumel off Mexico. So it's uh, it's about thirty degrees and about well, it's about ninety two percent humidity. And I've got a, I, I do um I do a lot of endurance racing. So I'm just uh, I'm doing an event over there. It's an Ironman event over there because um, that's that's my passion and that's what what kind of drives me. So I'm, I'm over there to, to do that. But I think. Um, Let's just say I've got a very tolerant uh, and, a, and an amazing wife because both in business and obviously in terms of you know what I'm about to go and do now, you know she's been massively supportive of that. And I, I think definitely in the particularly in the early years of Bear and Vita Coco, uh, my wife played a, a, a massive massive role in terms of keeping me on an even keel and making sure that you know my head didn't go underwater as well. Oh, that's lovely. But I mean, God, I I, I I'm shocked that you are competing at that kind of level in 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 such an uh, incredible endurance sport but yet you have time to run a massive company grow it get involved with you know your investments and mentor people and then train for this kind of thing how do you do that uh, i mean look i mean people have a different view and different aspects on this and it's i think you know from day one what i can tell you is that if i couldn't do all the endurance and the activity sport i do I wouldn't be anywhere near as good as my job because this drives and this is what energizes me in, in life and in business. Um, for me, it comes down to is I, I'm still the person, by the way, I'm not like a Margaret Thatcher who needs three, four hours sleep a night. I still <laughs> need six to eight hours sleep a night. Um, I make the right lifestyle choices. I don't really drink at all anymore. I look after myself. Um, I will get up at 4.30 in the morning and train not just midweek, but actually at the weekends, I'll be up, at, particularly in the summer, I can be out on the bike on the road at half or five in the morning at first light because I'll do four hours training or three hours training and I'm back at nine, you know, half nine and I can, I've got then the rest, of the rest of the day to spend with the kids. And I think, <laughs> you know, for me, it's just about being, I've got to be organized. I've got to plan it all out. Um, you know, I also have a flexible working arrangement, which obviously helps that as well, which probably wouldn't be as easy in a corporate business, but that's also one of the reasons of the direction I've taken that gives me that, that flexibility because I still work very hard hours work-wise, but equally, you know, as I said to you, what fuels my life and my business life is not just family, but also 
stuff like this, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to do now. And I think that's why it's so important for anybody, whatever your passion it is. And it doesn't have to be about doing it, you know, something that's um, endurance or whatever is it, you know, it can be anything really simple, whatever that passion is, don't let that be compromised because that's the thing you probably need most when you're doing startup building brands, you know, and, and want to be successful in business. Well, on that note, Giles, you know, thank you so much for giving us your time today, particularly before you fly off to Mexico. Uh, it's been really inspiring and really informative talking to you. And I'm sure our listeners will be over the moon to have heard everything that you've shared with us. So thank you so much. And the best of luck uh, with, is it a competition? I presume it is. Probably a stupid question. Uh, yeah, it is. So it's, I mean, I mean, look, right. It's, do I declare this? Yeah, I don't mind declaring this. So I guess I've, I've kind of, I race at quite a decent level. Um, Ironman do some world championships and they, they have two distances. They have a half distance and I, I qualify for the world championships in the half distance. Wow. They then, have a ra- they then have a race once a year in a place called Kona, which is in Hawaii. Um, and that's that's like full distance, which is typically, depending how good you are between, it's an eight, it's an eight to 11 hour race, basically. <sighs> and effectively, I'd like to try and qualify for Kona, which it, it's very difficult, but that's what I'm trying to do. And again, you, you got to aspire to these things. It, you know, it might not happen, but that's, you know, that's what I want to try and do. So wow. the best of luck. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thanks, Faye. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for listening.